Hello and welcome to Abscond with Ethan Renault. I'm Ethan Renault. You're listening to my podcast. Uh, this is a very different type of episode because normally on my podcast I have one segment that I call Media Talk, where I discuss a movie or a book or something that I was uh, kind of taken in lately in the media world. Uh, however, today's podcast and I think the following two. We'll see how long they go, if they warrant being their own podcasts, or if it's super short. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Um, but this podcast is different because basically it's an extended period of media talk. So this podcast will interest those who are interested in movies and film, as I am. I consider myself a huge cinephile, meaning I am like a film snob, a movie buff, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, as you are aware, we recently transitioned into a new decade of human experience, the 2020s. Uh, that means that we just left the 2010s and the decade has concluded. That means that it's time to look back over the decade and try to determine my favorite, I'm, I'm wording it specifically, my favorite films of the past decade. I'm not saying they're the best films of the decade. I am saying that they're my favorite films of the past decade. Now, this is one of the hardest things I think I've ever had to do. Little exaggeration used there. Um, only because by making the top 10 best films of the decade, that means I had to eliminate a lot of really, really good movies that came out in the 2010s. Uh, this episode I'm doing the 2010s. The next episode... I'll do my favorite films of the 2000s. Spoiler spoiler alert. Uh, two or three of my favorite films of all time came out in the 2000s. Not the 2010s. Um, and then I'll do one more, um, the 1990s and before. I know I'm lumping together basically a century of film history, but um, it's my favorites and it's my podcast, so I get to do what I want. Um, so anyway, these are my favorite films. Uh kind of open-ended criteria for being one of my favorite films. It could be, let me put it this way. It has to have what I would consider good cinematography, enjoyability of viewing, meaning a movie can be as beautiful and artsy as you want, but if you don't want to watch it again for a second time, then what's the point? You know, there has to be some enjoyability. Um, I know that that kind of makes me a bad film critic, um, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I can appreciate when a movie is well done. Uh, for instance, I'll tell you one that did not make the list was Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler. It came out last year. I saw it. Uh, spectacular filmmaking, like phenomenal, um, because what they were trying to accomplish was like angst and tension. And like you want every muscle in your body to be clenched for two hours. And that's what that movie is, and that's what they did, and they did it perfectly. But I don't know if I want to watch that movie again, because it was so intense and so uh, hectic that you're just like, oh, like, you just kind of don't feel comfortable. Um, so there has to be some element of enjoyability for a movie to be one of my favorites. So without further ado, I guess let's just get started with uh, number 10. Coming in at 10th place is... Drive. 2011, this movie has Ryan Gosling in it. I also noticed he showed up in three 
of my top 10 picks for the 2010s. So congratulations, Ryan Gosling. Way to just have a spectacular decade. We're all really proud of you here at Epscon Podcast. Um, Drive with Ryan Gosling, 2011. It is an exploration of light and cinematography. Beautiful, very simplistic, quiet storytelling. It definitely has a unique feel. This film... Every time I watch it, I just have the exact same thought in my head, which is this is a film done precisely perfectly. Like this is filmmaking at one of its highest um, uh, perfections of the craft. Like they, they have – they knew what they set out to do. They knew the exact tone, the exact feel with kind of like an 80s retro uh, low-key late night club vibe. Um, if you haven't seen it, Ryan Gosling plays a stunt driver for Hollywood where he gets paid to drive and crash cars. But then obviously on the side, when he's off the set of Hollywood, he drives for some shady people as a getaway driver in various escapades and kind of gets himself tangled up with some bad people. And his character is, is unique and interesting because he's quiet. Ryan Gosling tends to have this quiet, moody, um, you know, emo guy in his thirties without like the emo-ness kind of appeal to him. And he certainly does in this movie. And there's a love interest with Carrie Mulligan and it's just, uh, it's a great film. Um, maybe I should move it up. I'm probably going to say that about all these films. (laughs) Maybe I should move it up in my list. It's uh, phenomenal filmmaking. Definitely not for the faint of heart for a couple violent scenes involving hammers and gunshots and a lot of blood, but phenomenal filmmaking, phenomenal storytelling, uh, very, very expert handling of the craft. Number nine, we have a horror film. Is this the only horror one I had in here? Uh, kind of. There's like one and a half horror movies in this, in this list. Number nine, I gave The Witch, 2015's The Witch. Now, this movie is... I don't know if it's the scariest movie I've ever seen, but it's certainly one of the most haunting and it kind of sticks with you and you feel like you're cut off from society in a way Um, after seeing this movie or maybe while you're watching this movie, you feel like um, some sort of uncomfort. I don't know how how I would name it. Um, As you can tell, I haven't rehearsed how I'm going to talk about these movies. I'm just you know, kind of giving you my lasting impressions of them. I've seen them all at least a couple times, um, at least two or three times each, uh, several more times for my favorite ones. But yeah, I've seen The Witch several times and it just does a really great job of cutting, of, of like, okay, so the plot of The Witch is this family, um, there's one, two, three, four children, the mother and the father. The very opening scene is them being excommunicated from their community, and it takes place in the 1600s in Puritan, New England. They're labeled heretics and cast out into the wilderness. So they have to leave their community, and those are the only other humans you see for the entire film, besides the family of six and the witch. Um, Sorry, a family of seven, because the baby gets kidnapped in the beginning. And I'm not spoiling anything. This is in the trailer. The baby gets taken at the very beginning of the movie. Um, this The older daughter is playing peekaboo with her. So she's like, eh, 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 eh. and that the last time she covers her eyes and opens them and the baby's gone. 
and it's a mystery. It's like, did a witch take her? And there's, there's, there's a lot of play in the script and in the way things are shown where you kind of start to wonder, is there a witch? Is the older daughter the witch? Is there some, was it coyotes? Was it wolves? You know, like, um, it kind of, it kind of doesn't answer that question exactly. Um, but the entire movie is chilling. There's a soundtrack and a lot of the soundtrack is just kind of women yelling in this weird, like vibrato howl. I don't, yeah. Um, it's, it's really freaky. And there's, if you're not a fan of like demonic stuff in films, then don't watch the witch. But if you do want this, like this feeling of like you're secluded, this family is in the middle of nowhere, just a forest in new England um, in the 1600s. And the other reason I like this movie is because the script was uh, entirely taken from Puritan journals. So these are actual things that they would have said the way that they spoke, the way that they thought, the way that they prayed, their religious devotion is very evident throughout the film. Um, they depend on God for everything. And it's a really, really interesting examination of the Puritan way of life. Um, kind of uh, communicated through the lens of this horror film. And um, honestly, I don't know if it's the scariest movie I've ever seen. There's a few parts that are scary, but for the most part, it's an examination of like the, the purest way of life. How would this family have lived cut off from the rest of their society um, in the middle of the woods? And then there's some serious psychological, spiritual uh, torment that comes into play pretty early on. So The Witch, 2015's The Witch is number nine. Oh, wow. I'm taking forever to go through these. I might have to speed this up. Okay. Number eight, uh, kind of the opposite side of the spectrum from The Witch. Uh, this is one of my family's favorite movies. We love a good, fun, easy, lighthearted film. Uh, so coming in at number eight is Crazy Stupid Love. Also starring Ryan Gosling, Steve Carell, and a handful of other superstars. Um, this is one of the most fun chick flicks, I would say, of all time. Um, Emma Stone is in it as well. And the way that all the characters bounce off of each other, um, and I don't want to give anything away if you haven't seen it, but the climax toward the end of it is one of the best coming together of everything else tied throughout the entire film. Um, I, I would say easily in romantic comedy history. It's not predictable, um, but the climax is just like, like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like the first time you see it, it's amazing how it all comes together in the end, but it's so fun. You're laughing the whole time. Um, while also kind of dealing with a lot of heavy topics like divorce, um, womanizing, Ryan Gosling's character in the beginning is a womanizer, kind of goes the typical Hollywood route of learning, oh, I can't sleep with all these women. I should actually just settle down with one and be the most happy. So um, there's just kind of like some of those basic Hollywood lessons, if you want to call them that. Uh, but it's so much fun. And the concluding song is one of my favorite songs of all time, which is Blood by the Middle East. Um, yeah, so Crazy Stupid Love. Check it out uh, for really fun, but not necessarily cliche, I wouldn't say. Uh, romantic comedy. Number seven, Upgrade, 2018's Upgrade. Um, this is more of an independent film. 
It was made by a smaller production company and did not get a ton of attention. But I saw it because at the time I had MoviePass. If you remember, MoviePass was the um, thing where you could see unlimited movies in theaters uh, for $10 a month. Um, I went and saw like three movies a week because of it. Uh, And because of that, I was like, I have nothing else to do right now. I may as well go see a movie by myself, which I never do if I'm paying for it, you know? Um, but I go to the theater and I see upgrade by myself expecting just like a kind of to waste two hours, be entertained. And pretty soon into the film, I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is actually a really good movie. This is really well done. This is a plot that keeps me on the edge of my seat because if you, if I haven't said this before, my favorite, my absolute favorite thing in a film is to not know what's going to happen in the next minute or two. That's why I don't like the Marvel movies or um, any kind of movie that has this predictable plot. It's like, oh, the couple's going to fight. Oh, don't worry, they'll get back together later. Oh, the superhero is knocked down. I wonder if he'll win, you know? Um, Like, that's just boring. It's like, why would I sit through something if I know how it will unfold within the first quarter of the film, right? Upgrade is a unique concept where this guy gets paralyzed in a car accident and his wife gets killed in the accident. And it turns out it was not an accident at all, but it was orchestrated. I don't want to give too much away, but he gets this implant put into his spine, which can help him walk again. But that comes with a cost because the implant starts to have a mind of its own and control his movements and his actions. And initially it's a really good thing, but it ends up going sideways. And it takes you on this trip where you don't know how it's going to end. You don't know um, where it's going. And the cool thing is the way that the director uses the camera to communicate, okay, the way that this is shot right now is stiff and robotic and rigid. And that means that the guy is being controlled by the computer in his spine. Where at other times when there's like memories of um, like a pre-technological era, it's like softer, more gentle lighting and camera movements and it's organic. And um, there's just the way that the craft complements the plot and the themes and the, the way things unfold is just um, really, really well done. I really loved Upgrade. Um, highly recommend it. Uh, number six, this is the half horror film. Um, it's called a ghost story came out. Uh, when was it? I think it was also 2018. I want to say I didn't write the date down with Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara. This film is without question the scariest film I've ever seen, but it is not a horror film and it's not scary in the way that horror films are. Um, it's called a ghost story. So by the title, you might think that it's, a horror film. It's not. Um, one of the protagonists dies very early in the film. And for the rest of the movie, he kind of paces around quietly with a big white sheet over his head with two eye holes cut into it. And so he's kind of like, like it's scary in the sense that he's a ghost with a giant white bed sheet with two eye holes over him. But it's not scary in that like, you're like, you know, 
covering your eyes and you're like scared of what's going to happen next. But the reason it's scary is because he travels through time and soon after his death, time seems to travel at the same rate. There, there. This director used a lot of long shots. There's one shot I think that's five minutes and that's Rooney Mara after her husband dies of her just eating an entire pie for five minutes. And um, it just stays on her. And you sit there and you watch her eat the pie. And her husband, the ghost, is standing there watching her. And so, like, time is passing at this human rate. And they communicate that through the shot length, which is a really interesting factor to consider when making a film. Because most shots these days are, like, five seconds or less. Because there's, like, a constant shot change, right? Like, cut, 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 cut. And that keeps your attention. Ghost Story, as it goes through, the shot length decreases as you see the ghost travel through time faster and faster until he like reaches this future technological age and he's like zipping through that and then he jumps off a skyscraper and the mechanics of the time travel aren't necessarily uh, important or explained. Um, you know, but his wife Lee moves out of their house, new tenants move in, they move out, new tenants move in. And he is trapped in the same place while the world moves around him. And there's a couple times he bumps into other ghosts and talks to them, but it's silent. It's just through subtitles on the screen. And those are some of the most haunting exchanges you'll ever see. And, uh, Oh, it gave me, it gave me the willies. Um, so for instance, in one, in one scene, he's talking to another ghost through a window and he asks the other ghost what he's doing. And the other ghost says, I'm waiting for someone. And he says, who are you waiting for? And he says, I forgot. And it's just kind of like this very um, slow, methodical examination of like life after death. How long will you be dead versus how long will you be alive? How much will the things that you did in your lifetime uh, affect the world after you've dead versus after you've died versus how much of the world will just march on without you after you've died? And that's why it's really scary because... A ghost story kind of offers this existential humanistic view of life, which is like you're alive and then you die. And if you were able to kind of observe the world after your death, you'd see how utterly insignificant you were and how utterly vast time is. And uh, yeah, it's, it's terrifying to think like, the, like it's kind of like being underwater. Like if any of you have thalassophobia and you're scared of deep, deep water, like if the thought of just being underwater in the ocean and looking down into the blackness of the ocean floor scares the crap out of you, it's kind of like that. Um, but looking at time and history as this giant, vast entity uh, over which you have very little control. So anyway, a ghost story, half of a horror movie, mostly philosophical uh, existential pontification, which, if you're like me, will scare the heck out of you way more than any actual horror film will. Um, so halfway done. All right, this is good. This is good. Moving on to the top five. Um, so in number five, we have Ryan Gosling again, performing alongside a host of other great uh, actors, What's his name? Bradley Cooper and uh, Eva, Eva Mendes. Is that right? Eva Mendes? 
I think so. Eva Mendez, Ryan Gosling's wife um, in real life. Uh, number five, we have The Place Beyond the Pines. Place Beyond the Pines. Uh, very heavy film. It kind of takes place in three giant sections. And it kind of examines... Um, it examines like kind of the same... How do you describe it? The same area. It takes place in upstate New York. It's kind of a depressing setting. Excuse me. Um, Ryan Gosling is like a bank robber slash uh, motorcycle driver. So kind of similar to drive in that sense in that he um, is a skilled motorcyclist in the circus. He gets this girl pregnant, Eva Mendez, and then he ends up I shouldn't spoil anything. I can't spoil anything. Um, but it's just kind of like looking at the events that trickle down through this timeline of a couple decades of life in upstate New York, where you have hit like his perspective is the first third. In the second third, you have Bradley Cooper, who is the police captain and like doing everything right, abiding by the law, working on the other side, but he's not perfect either. Um, he, uh, doesn't do everything right. And there are certain actions he does that haunt him as well. And that trickles down to the third section of the film, which is the, um, I don't want to spoil it either. Anyway, you just have to see it. It's, it's heavy. It's not necessarily light, but the ending is kind of like, I feel like by the end, by the time you reach the end of the film, you feel like there was a weight placed on you at some point earlier in the film. And by the end, like it's taken off of you. Like, you don't leave it feeling happy and chipper, but you feel like it's something has been resolved. Like, something has um, become full circle. And there's symbolism that trickles down. If you watch it, watch what they say about ice cream. Um, it's, 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 it's really good. It's just a beautifully done film. It's moody and heavy, but very good. Very well done. Um, coming at number four. Oh, my gosh. This is the fourth Ryan Gosling film. Um, I just realized that. There's four, not three. <laughs> um, I may have a crush on him. No, I'm just kidding. He just picks really good films, I guess, to be in. Um, number four, Ryan Gosling, Russell Crowe, and a couple other major actors, um, The Nice Guys. The Nice Guys. This one takes place in the 70s in Hollywood. It is just so much fun. Like, I don't know if there are as many fun films made as this where it's like keeps you on the edge of your seat you don't know how it's going to resolve but it's two private eyes in hollywood in the 70s trying to solve a murder and the way that they banter back and forth the situations they get into are hilarious um I maybe believable <laughs> maybe maybe not maybe not quite realistic but it's just so fun it um it takes you on this crazy ride through these, the lives of these private eyes. So it's kind of a classic caper in that sense, or like a, like a detective film, but it's fun. Uh, fair warning, there's a couple scenes with nudity because they break into like a, a stripper party in, in some guy's mansion. And the, the whole film actually is about them investigating the death of a porn star in the 70s. So there's a couple... Uh, scenes with some nudity, but I, I don't know if I'd say they're super sexual scenes, if that makes sense, but there is nudity in them. 
Um, but yeah, it's just so funny. It, it just cracks me up every time I watch it. And uh, yeah, the nice guys. I just had to put it on my list. Um, again, I don't know about the order I put them in. I'm rethinking it. Um, so don't don't necessarily hold me to the order I put them in, but it's pretty close. Um, number three. Number three is a film that you have not heard of. It's called Submarine. It's a British film, but it's produced by Ben Stiller. And it's a coming-of-age story of this boy who is a British boy in high school. And he's kind of chubby, and he has these deep thoughts. Most of the film is narrated by him. And it's one of those artistic films where you kind of see things as he sees them. And sometimes you see his thoughts and the things he's imagining. And he has this crush on this girl who's actually not the prettiest girl in school by a long shot. She's kind of strange and artistic herself. And um, yeah, just the way that it's kind of, it communicates this cute story. Um, I think it's hilarious. The father in this film cracks me up. He is, um, he's a marine biologist in the film and he's just so quirky and goofy, like a classic British dad type of guy, but he cracks me up. The whole movie is really funny. Um, it's that great blend of like kind of a high school coming of age story with some, some like deep yearning and longing and emotion that high schoolers, uh, experience, um, and that romantic impulse that he goes through. Um, but it's also like just really funny and, (laughs) uh, yeah, I don't want to give away any of the jokes or anything, but it's a really, really funny film. Uh, heartfelt, sentimental, just a really, really great film from 2010. And uh, the the last two, number two and number one, I had the hardest time deciding which one should be two <clears throat> and which one should be one. So well, I'll just go with the one that I've known the longest and the one I've seen the most times, and we'll keep that for number one. Number two, very, very close second, Mad Max Fury Road. Now, every film commentator that I've listened to or watched or looked at has this at least in their top three. Some people gave it the number one spot for their best movie of the decade. And a lot of you, if you have not seen the movie, you might find that surprising. You're like, oh, it's just an action movie of them driving around in the desert. And that's basically what it is. But you can't, you can't know what the movie is until you experience it for yourself. Mad Max Fury Road came out in 2015. I saw it in theaters, and it was one of those where I walked into the theater, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's just going to be a fun, action-packed film. I'll get my adrenaline pumping a little bit, and maybe I'll go hit the gym after this. Nothing more than that. As soon as it started, probably within the first five to ten minutes, I'm like, okay, this film is unique. This film is bringing something different that I have not seen in an action film before. It is... um, for one, there's barely any CGI in it. All of the stunts they did like with real people, real cars, they built all those vehicles themselves, which are crazy vehicles. George Miller has some weird brain that comes up with this stuff. Um, it stars Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron. Um, and yeah, it's just so unique. The weirdness of the film adds to the characterization. A lot of people hail it as a feminist film because the, the one who does the real, um, 
kind of saving in the film is Charlize herself. Furiosa is her name in the film. So it's kind of like a female empowerment film, but it's not so heavy handed that, um, you know, everyone can't enjoy it if you're not a feminist, but it's just so uh, beautiful. And like the cinematography is unreal. A fun fact I learned about this film, they, it, they intentionally hired female color correctors so that they would make the movie brighter and more colorful than your typical dystopian fantasy film. Um, because if you think about it, most dystopian movies are like brown and gray and dark. Think of The Road, Cormac McCarthy, or Book of Eli. They have these heavy, like, uh, gray, brown, green, like, drab kind of tint to them. And they wanted this film to be the opposite. So they envisioned the future as this, like, bright place. Like, it's desert, but there's, like, fireworks. And they paint the vehicles crazy colors. And the costumes are wild. And, like, the flames that shoot out... And everything is just so colorful and vibrant. And the film has just so much energy. And, and like I mentioned earlier, you can, you can tell, you can feel when things are not CGI. Like, that's one thing everyone, like every critic hated about Black Panther is like the fighting is so, uh, like it doesn't matter. Like you just get hit. It's like, oh, I'm still flying around, just punching, swinging my legs around, kicking. I'm weightless. It doesn't matter if I hit someone or if I don't. Whereas when things are not CGI, you kind of feel the weight of them more, literally. Like you feel like, oh, this person is actually getting punched and that hurt. Um, Christopher Nolan says the same thing when he was doing the Dark Knight films. Like he's like, you have to do the actual stunts. Otherwise, the audience will feel the difference. And it's so true in Mad Max. It's just It, it, it just takes action dystopian fantasy to the next level and i absolutely loved it um it's poetic there some of the some of the lines in it are just like so um unique and poetic and uh there's even a bit of romance in it but you get to know the characters in this unique way while there's like high adrenaline pumping the entire time like they don't stop moving across the desert um, but you don't get lost in it. It's not like the action that you get lost in. Like there's so many, especially honestly, like the DC films, like Superman. Um, it's just like, okay, they've knocked another skyscraper down. Great. I don't care. <laughs> Whereas you don't get lost in the action of Mad Max. It carries you with it. Like there's, there's a teleological movement of the action in the film. And it's so well done. If you don't believe me, you just have to see it for yourself. And lastly, my number one pick for the 2010s, my favorite film of the decade, starring Ewan McGregor, Melanie Laurent, and Christopher Plummer, is Beginners, 2010. Um, again, that was a good year for film. 2010, Beginners. This film, uh, I can't even... I've seen it so many times. Beginners... Uh, stars Ewan McGregor as this boy named Oliver and it examines three different periods of his life and highlights the three main relationships of those periods of his life. So there's him as an adult when his 75-year-old father um, has just come out as gay because his mother has just died 
Oliver's mother's just died, and after she dies, he says to him, well, I'm gay. I've been gay the whole time. And so he begins experimenting, living like uh, this gay, uh, is it incorrect to say lifestyle? I can never remember what you can and can't say. Um, <laughs> but he begins just kind of embracing his homosexuality, going to clubs, getting a boyfriend at the age of 75. And you see Oliver like dealing with that, and he's like, "I'm I'm so happy. My father's happy, but it just you can tell that it messes with his head." And he's like, "Was everything a lie?" But then you go you go back in time, the other time period examines, and it bounces around between all three. It's not like linear in any way. Um, but the other one is when he's a little boy, and it's his relationship with his mother. And in this period, you don't see the father's face at all. You just see kind of the father's impact on the mother. And you really see the interplay between Oliver and his mother. And now she's clearly unhappy in her marriage because her husband isn't really attracted to her. And you see uh, the various ways in which his relationship with his mother kind of shaped and formed a lot of things that come out later in his life in the other two time periods. And so the other, the last time period that it takes place in is five years later uh, from the other one, after his father has died, his father has just passed away, and Oliver meets this French actress named Anna at a party, and he's depressed because his father has died, he's in his 30s, and he's single, and um, he's like, ah, there's just some scenes that weigh so heavy, like where he's kind of going through his father's belongings after he died of cancer, deciding what to keep, what to throw away, what to sell, what to give to people. And he kind of drags these trash bags of his father's stuff outside. And then he goes to a party and he's just like depressed. And he meets Anna, this French actress, and she says, oh man, the, the, the dialogue in this film uh, is the best. And she's like, why are you at a party if you're sad? And he's like, I thought I was doing so well to hide it. And she's like, no, it's your eyes. And there's symbolism there, too, because when he meets her, she has laryngitis, so she can't speak, and she communicates by writing everything down. And I don't want to give away too much, um, but there's so much symbolism embedded in this. The conversations he has with his dog, the colors, um, you kind of get the sense that he has something going on in his brain, because a lot of times you see his thoughts. For instance, when they first tell his father he has cancer... She says, it's the size of a quarter. And instantly a quarter just pops onto the screen. And then you can see his brain just going into two dimes and a nickel. And then five nickels. And then 25 pennies. And he's just like kind of thinking through things. And we as the viewer get this visual sense of his thoughts. And we're like, this is how Oliver experiences the world. This is what it's like inside of his brain. And I just could go on and on about this film. And I have. I've written about it a good amount of times. But that is my number one pick for my favorite films film of the 2010s. If you disagree with this list, fight me. <laughs> no, but really, um, I'd love to hear feedback. I'd love to hear what your favorite top 10 of the decade are. It took me a lot longer to pick these than I thought. I had to sift out a lot of good films. Oh, and I almost forgot my honorable mentions. The ones that I really wanted to squeeze into the top 10, but I couldn't. Uh, because they got bumped out by the others. So the three honor honorable mentions are, in no specific order, 
The Man from Uncle um, with Henry Cavill, Army Hammer, and uh, oh my gosh, the beautiful Danish actress. What's her name? I can't remember her name. She is phenomenal. She plays the Tomb Raider and she's an ex machina. Her name's going to come to me later. Um, Man from Uncle, one of the funniest films. I decided not to put it on only because the plot is a little formulaic. Um, as far as like a James Bond type action film, but the characters are unique and likable and hilarious and the chemistry that the way that they, uh, bounce off each other is so, so funny. Um, about time. So good. The only time travel movie that kind of just uses time travel as a plot device more than just like experimenting with the mechanics of time travel. Um, but it's a romantic comedy. It's, it's a a movie about family, about love, about relationships and about life. Like the, the final couple minutes of that film really just kind of make you reexamine how you see life. Like if I could re-experience my days and then adjust them and then make them perfect, would I really want to? It's kind of the question asked at the end. Um, such a good movie. It was so hard to cut these out. And then the last one is 1917. came out last year. Um, I only... Man, that was hard to cut too because that, I think, is the most technically impressive film I've ever seen. Um, the entire thing is basically supposed to look like it's comprised of two long shots. Like, the way that they made this film, the techniques, the the technical side of it, the mechanics, the cinematography is astounding. It is amazing what they did with this film. Um, The only reason I think I bumped it out was because it was not quite as... The plot isn't super strong. Um, It's a very simple plot. Uh, But simply for the sake of the mechanics of the film itself, it is definitely worth seeing. It's an incredible film um, from a cinematographical cinematographical standpoint. Um, Absolutely worth seeing. So those are my top 13 films of the 2010s. Tune in next time because I'm going to go through my top films of the 2000s. And then the time after that, we'll do the 90s and before. Um, I'm excited to do those. Let me know what you think about my picks. Um, Tell me what yours are. You can email me, ethan at ethanreno.com. You can send me your list on Facebook at ethanrenoofficial, Instagram and Twitter at ethanreno, or go to my site, ethanreno.com. Get in touch with me there and read some other things I've been thinking about and talking about lately. Also, um, I think this is the first time I'm announcing this on the podcast. My new book, Bad Timing will be out soon, uh, probably a month or two before it's completely finished. But Bad Timing, um, Bittersweet, Love Stories, Confessions, and Apologies, and What I Learned from Them. So it's a lot of memoirs about my dating, romantic life, and then advice that you can hopefully apply to yours. Things I've learned from my mistakes in the dating world. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about this book. I think it's, it's easily my most personal and um, I'm sharing a lot, probably oversharing in some parts of it, but I, I, uh, some of the best writing I think I've ever done. And I'm really excited to share it with you all. Bad timing. It'll be out soon. Um, 
So again, thank you guys for listening to this podcast. It's a, it's a joy to make it for you. And, um, yeah, reach out with your thoughts. Love you all. Talk to you soon. Bye.